Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. Welcome to Reasonable Doubts, the radio show and podcast for those who won't just take things on faith. Coming to you from Grand Rapids, Michigan, where we don't have a Chick-fil-A, but if we did, we still wouldn't go there. You can find us online at doubtcast.org or freethoughtblogs.com slash reasonable doubts. You can also listen to us here on Public Reality Radio, WPRR, Ada Grand Rapids, and W237CZ Hudsonville, 1680 AM and 95.3 FM, and of course, streaming at publicrealityradio.org. My name is Dave Fletcher, and with me in the studio, all of my fellow Doubtcasters, Mr. Jeremy Bean. Yellow. Hey, did anyone else uh, think that that was Chick Filla until they too. actually heard it on too. the news? Yes. I feel kind of stupid. That, that is the way it's spelled. You're right. Um, also, teen pop sensation Justin Schieber. Hello. Uh, happy to know that Justin survived his motorcycle trip, even though I warned against doing... Almost died, but only once. So. Well, you should write a book called Zen and the Art of Motorcycle Travel. So. Uh, no. And blend philosophy <laughs> with, with motorcycle breakdowns. And, of course, that is our own impish Dr. Professor Luke Galen. Hello. And it's that time, ladies and gentlemen, time for another summer blockbuster miniseries... Last year around this time, we had our Summer Genocide series. Ah, <laughs> oh, the good old days of the Summer Genocide <laughs> Absolutely. series. Uh, this year, we're closing out the summer with our Developmental Psych of Religion miniseries, which we're doing mostly to appease all of those Dr. Professor Luke Galen fans who have been clamoring all to both hear of them. From both you. of you guys, here it comes. Luke's mom, here it is. Um, <laughs> Actually, she's, she's one of the people who isn't my fan. So. Oh, well, who can blame her? Uh, we'll get into part one. <laughs> that explains a whole lot right there, too. <laughs> and really gets You into said the, this is developmental psychology, <laughs> right? So let's get into it. Uh, we'll get into that in just a moment, as well as some props and shit list. A fan suggested polyatheism featuring what may be the most useful god in all of history. But first, the Swiss Army God. <laughs> one of the major stories since we last spoke is the shooting at the movie theater in Aurora, Colorado. Don't worry, we won't get into a discussion on gun control and upset all of you out there who irrationally believe that one should have access to any amount of or any type of weapons that you want because 200 plus years ago, a group of men who only ever saw a gun that fired a single shot that took about 15 minutes to load and fired with very minimal accuracy, said that a well-regulated militia has the right to bear arms. We're not going to get into that, okay? I'm glad you avoided that. Sometimes. Absolutely, because it just, it just gets into fights. <laughs> Instead, I want to focus on one of the survivors of this tragedy who has sparked some controversy by claiming that she was not, as she sees it, saved by God. The audacity of this young woman. Uh, her name is Carly Richards. And um, she, she survived. She um, took shrapnel, um, several bullet wounds in the events in Aurora, Colorado. 
and actually the uh, tear gas canister that was the beginning of the assault landed at her feet, hmm. which is one of the things she accredits to her ability to get out of there uh, quickly and avoid further injury because she was trained, she was in the U.S. Uh, Navy, and knew what tear gas was. And as soon as the canister landed in front of her, she got up and uh, started running out. So that's one of the things she accredits her survival to. I want to read some of her statement here about um, the events. She says, first off, I hope not to offend anybody by saying this, but I wasn't touched by an angel. I wasn't blessed. I had a good head on my shoulders, and I used it. The event itself was nobody's fault but that of the criminal who did this. People can believe in whatever they want to, and perhaps the universe or a higher power or something else said, hey, it's not her time, and that is definitely possible. I mean, it's possible to get shot when going out to the movies, so I'm no longer ruling stuff out. But I'd like to give credit where credit is most certainly due, and thank the ones who need to be thanked the most because I didn't think they got enough credit sometimes. If my partner and I had not taken responsibility for ourselves at some point in our lives and joined the U.S. Navy, we would not have immediately recognized the smell of tear gas. If we had not been so sharp or just born with common sense and basic survival instincts, we would not have run. If we were lazy and slow, we would not have run as fast as we did. If we were not brave, we would not have kept moving, even though someone very well could have been blocking the exit with another gun. Though I seriously didn't even process it as gunshots behind us. We both really thought it was fireworks or something ridiculous, but still potentially dangerous. If Chris, that's her uh, partner, wasn't a smart, level-headed guy, he would not have stayed calm enough to drive me where I needed to go and handle the situation. If the medical personnel had not been absolutely amazing, I would not be in the shape I am now. I'm not trying to talk down to anyone who thanks their higher power for this miracle, and I will agree that that's a very appropriate word for this. So please, do not take it as such, because that's not what this is about. This is about me wanting you all to realize the immense feeling of gratitude that I have for Chris and the medical staff who took such amazing care of me. From the paramedics and the one who held my hand in the ambulance, to the nurses, radiologists, doctors, chaplain, social workers, and even the pharmacy tech at Safeway, I want you to know that you are the reason I am okay and I am in so much less pain right now. Now, this statement of hers has caused some controversy. As you can see, she's not saying, look, if you're saying God saved you or if you're saying God saved me, you're wrong. In fact, she is much more open-minded, I think, than a lot of us would be. Of course, um, never having experienced anything like this, it's hard to say. But she says, look, if you think that's the case, that's fine. I'm just trying to thank the people who I know actually helped me. That seems fair, right? I see no problem with that. <laughs> I make no objections to that. Now, some of the stuff she says uh, in here, um, and I'm not I, – I, I can't tell someone who survived an incident like this how to express their feelings or, or their narrative of the events. Some of the stuff gets a little bit close to victim blaming where she will say, you know, oh, we survived because we were smart and fast and all of that. I, I guess we want to be careful to not say that, oh, the people who did get shot 
just didn't have the instincts that you did. That you know, that's obviously not the case. But when she posted this, I believe it was originally on her Facebook, um, people reacted adversely to it. How dare you say that God wasn't directly involved in your survival? I, I think she's exactly right as far as this goes. Is you can thank God if that's your personal belief. You thank God um, for your survival or anything else. But we also have to acknowledge the people who actually did something, right? Mm. Well, there's, it's not that, but when people say, oh, God saved this or that, they never take into account how that makes victims feel, particularly religious victims. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, so that's great. God saved your loved one, but not mine. Why would that be the case? I think that people, the religious people, utterly ignore the effect of that sort of statement. Like, mm -hmm. well, we prayed, or and he survived, or, you know, God, an angel was was sort of guiding us. So what does that imply for, for people who didn't make it? Right. Right. What are you supposed to think about? Now, you know, as as non-believers, we would be just like that's, you know, it's awful, but bad things happen. There's no rhyme or reason to anything. Mm -hmm. And there's nobody to blame. Yeah, I, I think after a tragedy is an insensitive time to start, you know, having a war of worldviews, but, you know, w what you're saying is definitely valid, uh, Luke, and and also uh also, I just think it's nice to get a, a secular perspective in the media of this is this is how a non-theist would cope with a situation Absolutely. like this. You hear, you, you know, it's it's often at the end of pieces like these after a tragedy that they they naturally talk to how people seek refuge in faith and other no things atheists and to deal with holes it. and that yeah, sort of and, thing. and just yep. uh, just to hear like, okay, this is how an atheist deals with it. They they express gratitude towards yeah. the the staff that were involved and everything else. They try to make meaning of this too. It's just a, you know, yeah. and, and it seems like she was taking great pains there not to offend anyone. I, so. Exactly. I think she went yeah. um, well out of her way to not uh, condescend. There are times to, to not... offend and times not to, and this would be a time not to. Well, yeah. It's, it's so because well it's done. part of the civil religion now that we sort of make, weave the religious stuff into, the good religious parts into the speeches about after an event to make sense of it. You yeah, know, exactly. Like, and, and so when anybody like that, who even in, some innocuous way, you know, says, well, we shouldn't, you know, attribute these things to supernatural agents. People, it's almost like a violation of the of the civil religion that, you know, we should say nice religious things and angels and puppies mm -hmm. and things like that and don't rock the boat. And she's not even saying we shouldn't attribute this to a god or god. She's saying we should remember to thank the people. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and I think that's Absolutely important, and there, there was another news story that came out of this that was a slightly more secular perspective too. Uh, one one of the girls who was not injured but stuck around to help mm -hmm. several of the injured, and when they were, she was a college student and undergrad, and when she was interviewed afterwards, she said her inspiration, what kind of gave her courage to stick around and to and to help, even though it was a dangerous situation, was um, uh, meditating on Greek philosophers. She was wow. talking about right at that time. She was uh, uh, in you her classes. You never hear those news bites. Yeah, talking on, about on, on the show. Yeah, or Aristotle. The they were studying Aristotle in particular, and she was talking. And she was thinking, what would a virtuous person do in awesome. this situation? That's awesome. And uh, yeah, I mean, people. Uh, I'm sure there were plenty of people who were sticking around and helping because out of religious motivation too. What would Jesus do? No, uh, but nevertheless, it was. I guess as a philosophy teacher, I really enjoy hearing. Yeah, that's you know, great. That that stuff. It's not abstract discussions right. all the time. It can really have an impact when it counts in people's lives. 
I, I hate to be a wet blanket on this, but um, I do have to take issue with um, the latest thing that uh, Carly Richards has had to say about the shooting, and that is she is calling for the shooter to be killed by a firing squad and then mm. um, left to bleed out and die that way. And again... I thought you could only do that in Utah. This is Colorado. <laughs> the... It, we made a joke out of that. <laughs> you know, the, the level of emotions involved, especially for a person who's, who was there and had this happen to them, I get that. But killing someone uh, for killing people is never the right answer, especially shooting someone. I, I get the impulse to want that, but Maybe we it's need to be a, better a, than our impulses. I might be a bleeding heart liberal psychologist, but my guess is, I'm going to go out on a limb here, mental health issues might play a role when we get to the trial phase. Yeah. Just, there's a prediction. Prove me wrong, people. <laughs> but maybe the guy might be found to be mentally ill. Just saying. Well, just because we cannot get enough psychology stuff... <laughs> Let's uh, let's can. walk into the first part of our latest epic mini-series on psychology. You sometimes hear atheists making the claim that uh, children are naturally non-believers. A couple examples here. Greg Kokel, a, a Christian apologist, was nice enough to find some of these quotes uh, from uh, atheists like Tim Koval, everyone is born an atheist, religion is learned, or the young, uh, young secularist author David McAfee, now the way I see it, everybody is born as an atheist, and without submersion into religion as a child, we would most likely maintain that position. And you can find quotes a little more qualified than that, but you can find quotes uh, along the same line from A.C. Grayling, Richard Dawkins, or some wingnut named John Hitchens. Locke who suggests that kids are these blank slates. <laughs> John Locke. Well, we're so past that. Isn't that Rousseau? Locke, Locke was the blank slate. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And I and actually, this is very interesting to me because this is something that I kind of take for granted, this idea that children are born atheists and they have to learn religion. So, uh, One of the authors we're going to be talking about today, one of the psychologists, Justin L. Barrett, who I believe you said it was a Calvin grad. He was a Calvin graduate, so, local ties. Yeah, there. local ties. And some of his researchers are, if you look at their names, they're, they're quite Dutch. They're from the, the Calvin tradition. <laughs> <laughs> they end in Zma and... And, Start with you know, Van. He calls yeah. this uh, he calls this the indoctrination hypothesis, the idea that religion would just die out were it not for parents rigorously training their children in religious superstition. But uh, Barrett and a handful of other developmental psychologists are really making a pretty strong case that the opposite may be true, that our natural tendencies might incline us to religious belief. And that was going to be the subject of our discussion today. Is it really true that human beings are born believers? Which is the title of his book, Born Believers. The Science of Children's Religious Belief. And we'll also be discussing Jesse Baring's book, The Belief Instinct, which is overlaps a lot with that. Yeah, Justin Barrett is a Christian and Jesse Baring is an atheist. Mm -hmm. So, so yeah, we have two authors writing books about the same data but coming from very different perspectives on it. I mean, we've we've talked about some of this stuff before about within with evolutionary psych of religion with with like Pascal Boyer's book, mm -hmm. the Religion Explained. There's a lot of there's a whole cluster of, you know, evolutionary psychologists that deal with this, but you're right, Barrett does stand out because he's 
uh, I can just picture the conferences that they'd be like, oh, we all agree on this and this and this and this. Oh, and God exists. What? What? <laughs> what? Yeah, he's definitely an outlier as far as that goes. So it's in, yeah, we'll get to the implications, but uh, it is an interesting melange of of researchers. Yeah. In his book, uh, Barrett Justin Barrett says. Uh, Given the way that minds naturally develop, this search leads to beliefs in a purposeful and designed world, uh, an intelligent designer behind that design, an assumption that the intelligent designer is super powerful, super knowing, super perceiving, and immortal. That's uh, from the introduction of his book. So, uh, so Barrett is laying out that we have a we have a pretty we have a pretty strong tendency to form uh, to form God beliefs. Now, he's actually he's. In portions of the book, he's more careful to explain exactly what he means by that. And it's not that uh, we're preloaded with theism. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, not, we're not born monotheists. Uh, we're not born with a very robust God concept or anything else like that. The idea is more that because of the way that our brains are built, we have certain tendencies. Right. And so we're more susceptible to certain kinds of beliefs. Yes. yes. We're others. inclined towards believing in something. So our naturally inclined tendencies make us primed and ready to receive the cultural concept of God. Mm-hmm. Think of it so, as have templates mm-hmm. that, that provide the basis for things, and then the templates are filled, the details are filled in later on by the culture. Right. For example, uh, primarily things like theory of mind, the ability for people to get that other people are not just machines, but have independent thoughts and feelings and, and aspects. So we've talked about that as being one sort of pillar on which religious beliefs are built on because you obviously need to be able to project out into the ether, mm-hmm. okay, so there's something that wants me to do this or, God, or there's this being that has intention. You know, so there's theory of mind and there's also um, agency detection. So um, anything as basic as there's a movement, something must have caused that movement to, you know, that, that things are, you know, when the wind, like animism, when the wind blows, it's, there's a spirit, there's an intention behind it. Mm-hmm. And things are not just, again, machines, but there's agents there. Um, so Barrett talks about hyperactive agency detection as being the other as, another so, aspect. Of so that. the difference between those would be that hy- while hyperactive agency detection detects the agent, the theory of mind would would apply actual content to yeah. that agent's. That's one way to say that that mind. you know you would say you know twig snaps. What's that? And st- uh, it could be right. a tiger, and then you know that right. tiger might want to eat me. That you fill in with that exactly. Uh, yeah. And then there's other aspects of things like intentionality and purposefulness. That is a, a teleological thinking that we seem to be, but that people seem to be wired towards that things happen for a reason and they're goal directed, and that these agents have intentions and purposes. Mm. And then you know moral components. So we, you know, let's let's give some examples of like what leads these researchers to believe that kids develop this stuff, you know, naturally yeah. at an early age. One of the th- one of the features that I noticed a lot on the the experiments dealing with agent detection, so maybe that's a good place to start. Uh, that's where Barrett starts, uh, is that agency detection seems to be related to movement, or rather, our kind of naive physics of the world. In the very beginning, we have a sense of how things move, how they're supposed to move, and children, even at a very young age, even as early as six months, seem to be able to know that inanimate objects or artifacts are not agents. They are not capable of moving themselves. Objects need to have a force impacted upon them to move, whereas agents can move of their own volition. And closely tied into that developmentally is the re- some sort of recognition that agents act to attain goals. So some examples of developmental psych data that support this 
is that uh, for listeners who've, who are already familiar with developmental psychology, uh, you know that one thing, since babies can't, uh, can't talk to us, we can't interview them, how do we actually infer what a, what a baby is, is actually mm-hmm. thinking? And psychologists generally use as a measure gaze length. Uh, what, what do the children seem to be surprised at? Uh, what features are they surprised at in their environment? Uh, children as early as six months show surprise when artifacts or non-living things move themselves or move in purposeful ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, uh, showing, being shown a computer screen uh, with, with uh, these animated circles They'll have like a circle that's trying to get to another to another circle, and it has to jump over a, a barrier. But when they remove the barrier, kids the kids lose interest unless the circle starts jumping when there's not a barrier there anymore. Uh, the mm-hmm. idea is that they already have a sense of the the purpose and what would be the most efficient way for the circle to achieve it. And now, if this circle is now engaging in a uh, hard to understand behavior, why would it still be jumping over this barrier that's been removed? They fix their attention on it again. So they get this kind of hazy idea of, uh, of a goal that's possibly in mind. Uh, related to that is uh, gazing. So babies, for example, uh, as, for, as early as nine months, they can point to things. They'll point to us, <laughs> point to things so they'll direct our attention. This is beginning of theory of mind, right? Probably some of the most early signs of it is that they're trying to direct our attention to something. But babies at nine months will also look at other people's gaze. Where are they directing their gaze? So what are they trying to look at? Uh, one, one of the interesting experiments related to this and why Barrett is interested in this is because it shows that as, as early as one year old, children do not need to view agents as being human. Mm-hmm. They can view other things as having agency. So, Such as Elmo. And they found this by looking at the at babies following the gaze of abstract objects, mm-hmm. trying to predict what they were looking at. So they had this experiment where they were using this kind of fuzzball. And the fuzzball, they had... Like a triple. Yeah, sort of. They had this condition where uh, a, a fuzzball, it would babble when the baby babbled. It would light up when the baby moved uh, in a purposeful way. And the second condition, it behaved the same way as the first, but this fuzzball had a face now. And in the third condition, it would babble and get and light up randomly. Uh, it had it had there was no purpose to it. Uh, uh, the babies were, of course, interested in the first two conditions. Uh, it seemed to be a face. A face was an immediate sign of agency, and a, a face for them triggered trying to find out where the face was looking. But also, it didn't have to be a face. It could be this more abstract interaction. If it was engaging with the baby purposefully in any sort of way, they tended to identify it as a potential agent. The one that I thought was most impressive, though, was that the naive physics of creating uh, disorder versus order, that when they saw like a ball bearing knock over things, that's boring and they wouldn't look at that. But if the things seemed to reassemble themselves as Mm -hmm. a result of the ball bearing into an orderly thing, that got their attention, except when they put a face on the ball bearing, the kids seem to assume that, you know, random objects can't make order out of disorder, but one with a face could. They, they seem to, yeah. in, a, in mm. other words, they got, they habituated to the fact that one with a face, oh yeah, he seemed to get these random blocks and put them back together, and he has a face, so that's pretty normal. Mm-hmm. But, but an object, just a random object, that would be unusual. Yeah. So they seem to get the fact that other agents can create, have, you know, can create order out of disorder, but not just random objects. 
So that's another component of Barrett's case here. Agency detection is very connected to design in the natural world. Uh, some sense of order. Agents make order. Non-agents don't create order. Order doesn't come out of randomness. He also talks about uh, like Deb Kellerman from Boston University where children are asked about the reasons why rocks have edges on them. And they'll, they're more likely to interpret this as they have edges and, and sharp points so that they're not sat on and crushed. So there's a kind hmm. of... They must have been there for a reason. When features of objects or, or in the natural animals world have can reasons. scratch themselves on them. Yeah. Right, yeah. right. The order detection. I guess part of agency detection is order detection. Now, what you're mentioning comes in a little bit later in life. Uh, by the time that they have this active, uh, what they call teleological explanations for things, mm. um, made for explanations, by age five, this becomes much more robust. And but some of the some of the experiments here are really interesting too. They have this experiment where they, uh, uh, like you were saying with rocks, when they give the children options to say, is someone responsible for rocks, animals, trees, etc., or is something responsible for it? Or did they all just happen? Did they all just get here? Seventy-five percent of the children preferred the someone explanations. But usually, an- the answer is again Elmo. It's not. Uh, <laughs> or uh, I mean, I see this with my own daughter, my my youngest. When something happens, it's always blaming someone for it. It's not God, you know, but it is that idea of reaching out to explain why this happened, who must have done it. They seem so, to be- so they're ready for to 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 blame agency, but you know, obviously the ideas primed into them are going to be in, informing right. where uh, they're what, jumping what to that, with yes. that agency. Yes. Yeah, they seem to be resistant to stuff happens explanations. That yeah. is, if you ask yeah. them why is it here, they come up with there must be a reason that it's here rather than just it's here. Yeah. You know, which clearly leads into things like proto beliefs and intelligent sort of design preferences. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So that's that why you never see stuff- a stroller with a shit happens sticker on the back. <laughs> <laughs> now, one of the odd things I thought was that this tendency, though, did drop in one category, and that was for natural events. If you're asking why a storm happened, something of that nature, an earthquake, children were, were less likely by 25% less likely to evoke agency, hmm. um, whereas they were yeah. – uh, and it increased for animals. Animals, uh, they were – so they would be much more likely to give a teleological explanation for – I sh- shouldn't say much more likely, slightly more likely okay. to hmm. give a teleological uh, explanation for animals versus you know rocks or inanimate objects. It's so like when they asked them, why did the first you know, monkey exist? They would say, so there's somebody to climb trees. So, they had, so somebody could be in the jungle. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, As uh, opposed to, why did the first tree exist? Uh, Barrett and others were speculating that, that maybe this is because animals have features that are so clearly tied into their environment. They mm-hmm. seem purposeful. The beak, of a, you know, the beak of a bird to get seeds or that sort of thing. And yet it took until uh, Darwin to figure that out. <laughs> Whereas natural events and natural events uh, you know, seem to be more chaotic, more random. So mm-hmm. maybe they're not triggering the same kind of agency or order detection to the same level. But the key, the real key point that Barrett is trying to push home here is that teleological explanations are preferred even when the children are not explicitly taught them. Mm-hmm. So this is, I mean, his purpose, again, is to refute what he calls the indoctrination hypothesis. You could just say, well, that's because these kids are, they're now getting at the age in these 
tests where they might be taught about God. Yeah. People are telling them this happens and because yeah. God. And Barrett is saying no one's explicitly taught them where rocks come from. If you look at their explanations, mm-hmm. the kind of creativity that are in them. Yeah. You know, why why are there rivers so we could fish in them? Why why are there rocks so animals can scratch their backs on them? These are not explanations that are explicitly taught to the children. That's uh, what he, I teach my kids. Yeah. Well, yeah, yeah, except in yeah, except in the Fletcher household. Yeah. Oh gosh. What's an iPad? Well, we're scratching kids. our backs on some rocks. Uh, <laughs> hey, little Fletcher. Well, a what's an iPhone for? It's for Daddy to get mad at and throw at the floor. Yeah. <laughs> Facebook. Well, see, the the other thing that Barrett has, was reacting to was there's been a standard theory in developmental psychology. Some people might remember from back from their college days in the uh, the Piaget's theory. Jean oh, Piaget, yeah. the the God, French psychologist. Yes. He's been a lot of his time talking to kids, and he developed this theory mm-hmm. that kids develop religious beliefs that are superhuman versions of ordinary humans. That is, mm-hmm. they, they would think that, okay, mommy and daddy are sort of uh, like super beings, and God is like a super, super parent, things like that. Barrett's ideas are actually uh, in some ways contradictory to that because he's suggesting that what kids do is they actually start off with godlike concepts and then subtract elements for, for humans. So there's a whole series of studies hmm. that we can get at where when he asks people like, you know, about knowledge, whether people have knowledge of, of things that, or even the ability to detect to, that people don't know things, they actually seem to start off with robust concepts of super knowledge. Hmm. Like, like, you know, God would know things and mommy would know things and other people would know things. And then as they get older, they learn that humans don't know things. Barrett is careful to point out this is not omniscience. <laughs> this is uh, mm-hmm. this is not uh, when we say that children attribute superpower to agents. We're not talking about all powerful uh, sorts of things. I mean, he begins by talking about some anecdotal evidence. Children sometimes seem to think that their parents are capable of epic feats of strength and that sort of mm-hmm. thing. He mentions thinking that his own grandfather could have picked up the refrigerator when he was a kid to help him get a toy. But what I, what I thought was more interesting was the experimental data. I you're, found this really interesting. You're saying interesting. the experimental data is is more interesting than the anecdotes? Oh, Jeremy. Yeah, yeah, I know, <laughs> how, I know. That's, how dare <laughs> you use science? That's, that's why I have such a hard time relating to people. <laughs> but I think what's way more interesting is this chart. <laughs> Look at the bars. Um, first of all, just reports from children on their imaginary friends. Uh, children have imaginary friends, and as early as age three, when they can they can talk and explain their imaginary friends' abilities, their imaginary friends know everything they do. Mm-hmm. What did he call it? A self-centered, self-centered realism around three or just prior to age three tend to think that everybody else will know what they know. Mm-hmm. So like you mentioned, when you talk to kids on the phone, they'll often say, and here's my this and here's my dog, as if you could see that, right. but you can't see that. So it seems kind of cute, like, oh, he doesn't know that I can't, mm-hmm. that I'm not privileged for some information. So if you think about it, imaginary friends are kind of like a theory of mind gone wild because they're essentially extrapolating out there all these desires and wants yeah. and properties to their friend. And more than that, they don't seem to get the notion at that age of, of false belief formation. Mm-hmm. That uh, that other people could be operating under under bad ideas, and so they have very ingenious tests to try to tease out when does their theory of mind become more refined. Uh, one was a uh, an experiment that Barrett recommended you try with your own children. So uh, 
uh, Fletch, you might enjoy this one. I love experimenting uh, on the children, especially it. anything that may leave them confused. <laughs> yeah, or possibly tear up or well, yeah, uh, be absolutely. disappointed. <laughs> uh, like this one. Anything like, that denies them a cookie. Like the, Yeah, well, and that's exactly yeah. what it is. Uh, they bring out a cracker box, mm-hmm. and uh, they uh, they go, ooh, you know, what do you think is in the cracker box? And the kid's like, oh, crackers. <laughs> and, uh, oh, yeah. And then they open it up, and what do the kids find? They, they find rocks. And, you know, after the age of three, children will violently attack their parents for playing such a <laughs> But before – Earlier than that, they will eat the rocks. So, you know, before the age of three, they'll ask the kids, you know, what do you think is in the box? And they'll say rocks now. Mm-hmm. They, they know. And then they'll say, well, if, you're, if your mommy were to come in, what would she think is in the box? Rocks. Mm-hmm. Right. What does your imaginary friend think is in the box? Rocks. Yep. Everybody now knows what the child, you know, what did you think the first time when you saw this box? What did you think it was full of? Rocks. They can't even retroactively yeah. see that they were like the, uh, wrong in something. There's the other experiment where they will use dolls and one doll comes yeah. into the room and hides something. Yeah. And then another doll comes in and moves it to another place. That's like the Princess Sally studies. You know, what, yeah. where, what, okay, she comes right. back into the room. Where will she? Where, where is she going to? What you know, look for her thing? And they and the younger kids don't get the fact that she doesn't know things because she didn't see you switch yep. the marble into the different. Bathroom. That's the one I actually yeah. really want to do with with my daughter because it's supposed to be around the age of three where they start being able to. To distinguish to different distinguish. knowledge sets that yeah, different people exactly. have. Yeah, exactly. And she's so, approaching two, so I'd like to see where she does now and check her again in a couple months. So so the idea is that uh, at this point, at this level, the uh, everyone, all agents have super knowledge, just mm-hmm. like God. Slowly over time, the child begins to un- learn and understand mommy doesn't have super knowledge. You know, by, or my friends don't have super knowledge. By age three, they can attribute false beliefs to humans now. Mm-hmm. But when they're asked what God knows, at this point, God still knows that the box is full of rocks, uh, which, is, which is interesting. You know, uh, Barrett's, Barrett's take home from this is that at a very young age, they're beginning to differentiate. They're not just thinking of God like mommy and daddy. Mm-hmm. Now they're beginning, beginning to differentiate between what God could possibly do and what a human agent would so do. But what's also interesting is that, yes, even though they can attribute false beliefs to human beings now at this point, they're much slower to get over their own invisible friend. Invisible friend seems to retain their super knowledge for a much longer time than uh, visible agents would. So it's so, actually the opposite of Piaget's theory. Rather than superhumanizing and creating gods from superhuman things, we're actually subtracting from godlike properties mm-hmm. and creating humans. Okay, well, mom doesn't know. You know, these other people don't know. The only people that still retain the full knowledge are these God concepts. I guess this was, this study was a bit of an outlier. It didn't fit all of uh, Barrett's conclusions, but he, he mentioned it was they did this experiment with the Maya, uh, with M- Maya children. That was a cool one. Yeah. Because they, they have the rationale for that is that they have more than one omniscient, omnipotent God. They have gods that have different properties, some of which are, you know, the um, are more approximate to our God, but other ones are sort of like gods that are forest gods, and maybe, maybe they're a little dense. Maybe they don't know everything, and mm-hmm. they have specific skill sets, you know, like they might help you do this, but they don't know everything like these other gods. Or forest gods should only know what happens in the forest, whereas, mm. you know, they might not know what happens on the plains or in the village and stuff like mm. that. Well, one of the experiments they started off with was it's kind of like the rocks and cracker box experiment, but in this case, which I think they should have just 
I didn't hear them doing this with the uh, with the Western children, but they just give them a box and they don't tell them what's in it. <laughs> I guess mm. they did a similar experiment where they wrapped a present, but they give the Mayan kids a box, and if the contents of the box are unknown, and they ask the children, "Does God know what's in it?" God doesn't know what's in the box mm. either. Or uh, this was a little a little contra Barrett too that there is a, clearly a time when learning comes in and overrides this natural tendency to see to see agency. Uh, they'll give children like a black uh, a black box and they'll then they'll illuminate it and say that there's a cube inside, or, or show them that there's a cube cube inside and they'll turn it off and they'll say. Uh, can mommy would mommy know what was in this box? Hmm. Um, would God know what was in this box? But they'll also say if they told them beforehand that cats can see in the dark, kids would be able to take their learning now, their fact that they know about cats, hmm. and correctly be able to say the cat would be able to perceive this, mm-hmm. even though mommy could not. Basically, then the other the other, when they have a range of deities that some of which have should have full access, smart deities. And then one of them I think is, I don't know how to pronounce this, but it's called Chi-Chi. Uh, that's kind of a slow-witted god that, you know, maybe like just forest knowledge or something like that. Mm-hmm. They can, at early ages, they start to be able to, d- d- to distinguish between who has knowledge and who doesn't have knowledge. Chi-Chi there. wouldn't know this because he's kind of a dummy. Right. So yeah. the, uh, you know, that younger kids might have attribute super knowledge to everything. Like we just mentioned, they think that everybody knows everything. But as the kids get older, they seem to start peeling away gradually and say, okay, this God knows everything, but this one doesn't, and mommy certainly doesn't, and mm-hmm. blah, blah, blah. So, you know, it, again, his, his take home with all these things is it doesn't really fit an indoctrination hypothesis uh, as much as it does this inborn sort of tendency. The template is there for the concept of omniscience uh, hmm. and that, and that we, they have to learn then shades of that as they get older. This would also be true with the whole aspect of immortality, uh, not just agents, not just minds or purposes. But children seem to begin with the assumption that gods, humans, and actually some animals too are just immortal. They have to learn that uh, no, actually, uh, they, uh, mortality is a real fact that things will die and, and cease to exist. They just don't learn that for God. So immortal and in the sense that their bodies will never die? That, they, uh, that they will just – that they will all exist. Now, what you mentioned with bodies is okay. this the, is – The intuitive dualism. Yeah. Learning mortality is actually way more easier for children when it comes to biological functions than it would be for mental functions. See, this okay. actually – this takes my, my reward for the most sadistic experiment that I love. This is the, the <laughs> Jesse Bering study <laughs> as kids actually, you know, what, lying about crackers. That's one thing. But here they actually have a – the puppet is dead. Uh, yeah, <laughs> this is the Mr. Mouse and Mr. Alligator study that, yeah. that Jesse Baring. He's got like, like X's oh, for eyes. <laughs> oh, look at the yeah. here's Mr. Mouse and Mr. Oh, Mouse is no. doing fun things. Oh, Mr. Alligator comes along and eats him. Munch, munch, munch. Dead. Mr. Mouse is now he's dead. dead. After the children get after they done sobbing, <laughs> <laughs> then they start. Then you can start to ask them what is what aspects of death. So d- does Mr. Mouse get hungry? Does Mr. Mouse get tired? Is he coming back anymore? And what it turns out is that, that as kids get, um, get older, they start, there's a discontinuity. They might say, no, he's not coming back anymore. He's not going to move anymore. Physical properties, they get mm. the fact that death is, you know, they first yeah. get the fact that death is permanent. If you ask permanent. him, if, is Mr. Mouse hungry? It's biological say, oh, cessation. But then when, he, then when they ask him, does he get hungry? Does he get lonely? 
the psychological properties, there's an age where those two things split. The kids get physical mm. aspects of death are permanent, but the psychological aspects, they continue to make attributions about the mental state. Right. Yes, he's lonely. He misses his mother. Yeah. Which means, again, the implication of that, that, that what Barron interp- and, and Barrett interprets as that there seems to be some sort of naturalistic tendency to have dualism to attribute, you know, immortality at least to psychological properties. They, they, it's very difficult for us, for kids to imagine, and adults, to imagine the cessation of psychological properties. So when, you, and, when we're working with those kinds of templates, it's really easy to imagine immaterial spirits or, or things like this. Or uh, even further, that's, it's almost impossible for you to imagine not, there right. not being such a thing. Right. right. And children, I mean, this is uh, where we've, we've gotten into the later developmental stages but even even much earlier, children are aware that agents don't have to be visible. Okay. Uh, v- I mean, very young children learn to cry to bring in their, uh, you know, bring their parents in. Uh, Basically, from birth, children yeah. know. I, an example last uses. Week. <laughs> <laughs> ch- ch- uh, children know. For example, an example Barrett uses is if uh, if you were to move furniture around in a room while they're gone and they come back in, they don't assume that the chairs moved themselves. They know some sort mm-hmm. of agent went in there. Okay. And like in the sixth sense, all the drawers um, come out, and who did that? So this, this, you know, this plays naturally into if we can all pr- already project agency that's invisible. If we already have a tendency to hang on to reading minds in, even if biological death makes sense, we still have this uh, this persistent belief in minds afterwards. Well, I mean, Barrett's trying to show us, hey, look, it's not far from that to a god. Yeah, it's it's actually a pretty short step. Maybe a side point. One of the interesting things is, of course, we see all these tendencies not just in children. We send we see these tendencies, some of them, retained into adulthood. Adults, too, can read agency and intention and purpose into abstract objects. They just tend to get richer in the way that they present the mental lives of these abstract objects. So you could show college students, you know, two circles, uh, you know, two triangles chasing a circle. They'll just come up with a much more robust explanation of, oh, the triangles are competing for the love of the circle and that sort of thing. This triangle is harassing because of the hegemony of the patriarchy. (laughs) (laughs) Um, With teleological explanations for things, uh, purposeful explanations of natural objects and animals and that sort of thing. What I thought was interesting was that they found that adults, if you force an adult to offer a really quick explanation for a natural object, default, they'll default to teleological explanations. When you give them more time to think about it, they'll give more naturalistic explanations. This has been a lot with what we've talked about in some previous episodes with the analytical versus intuitive thinking continuum. And that, that what you're talking about there is when you put people under cognitive load is one of the terms that when you, in, in essence, put them on time constraint yeah. or make them do math problems or something that distracts them. They're often viewed as that's viewed as a paradigm that will bring out naturalistic tendencies because mm-hmm. if you think about it, if you're it's like occupying your computer with a bunch of calculations, it slows down the system. There you you get more intuitive responding. Mm-hmm. So what what he's saying, suggesting in here is that when people might talk the talk when it comes to well, there's many factors to consider and uh, and they tend to you know offer these non supernatural explanations, but when you put them under time pressure or load pressure, they just yeah. default to well you know, a, a naturalistic tendency. In other words, it's in us too. <laughs> right. Even he us was... atheists. Uh, uh, and it will probably even come out when we get lazy. 
Uh, well, the, we've talked about this before in the political sense that re, that uh, of attributing blame for things like like when the hurricane Hurricane Katrina mm-hmm. disaster hit, that there's a tendency for conservatives to say, well, the people should have done something. They brought it on themselves. They should have got out of the city. Liberals are like, well, you can't. There's complex things. And when they stressed the liberals out with cognitive load, they became more conservative in their wow. in their. Uh, you know, More yeah, maybe it was the their victim. fault, or made them f- afraid. That was yeah, so, similar so thing. fear does that fear. too. So yeah. this is a, a similar thing in that in that it suggests that in some ways there are modes of thinking that are in all of us, and even the most sophisticated atheist, liberal, you know, hippie type that that's educated when under stress or fear or load when you, you are. You know, when you don't have time to deal with things, you become more this sort of intuitive shoot from the hip type of thinking. Well, the universe wanted it that way. It's karma. Not surprising education is the major factor that uh, will make that shift into uh, into more naturalistic explanations. Uh, they find when you remove education from the equation, adults uh, will make up teleological explanations just as much as children. They also find this with Alzheimer's patients, hmm. of all things. Uh, again... Again, indicating that um, it's probably the higher cognitive function and the history of learning that's been degraded there. And so they're relying once again on more, more instinctual impulses there. So Barrett's right. Well, as if we take a strong idea of this indoctrination hypothesis, that if you were to stop the indoctrination of children into religion, they might very well still keep their uh, uh, some of their more tendencies to supernatural beliefs they might even uh, come up with ideas of supernatural agents and, and stuff on, on their, their own. own. In fact, he gives anecdotal evidence of his like secular atheist type friends. Like he gives, I think, some of his people that he knows in Europe that claim staunchly that they raise their kids without any religion, mm-hmm. and that he thinks it's funny because they come to him with studies like our little kid came home and and said that he believes that God, you know, or even I think he mentions Julia Sweeney's anecdote of her daughter, you know, being raised with evolution and yeah. all that stuff at home. But when she comes home from school, you know, she's like, well, I'm a I believe in God at school and I don't believe in God at home. Mm-hmm. So he's uses anecdotes like that to kind of, in his ways, he's being sort of puckish about it, but that, look, you know, you can try to eliminate religious explanations and indoctrination from the environment, but kids will still sort of default in many ways to the supernatural mode. I just, yeah. I just don't think you can actually eliminate it from the environment. Is the I mean, we can do the thought experiment of, you stick a kid in a room the first 12 years of his <laughs> the, life and the, the yes, Skinner just box. A thought experience. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Let's and, purchase a child and yes. try it out. <laughs> it, but it, realistically, I mean, from everything they take in, in on TV, friends at school, even if they are raised in a staunchly non religious home, they're still getting these hints of other people believe that. God did X, Y, and Z. I don't think you can yeah, I truly... Think, I, I think it's almost even more fundamental than that, though. He, uh, in a yeah. presentation I watched where he kind of talks about, like, it's, it's kind of like a tree. If you take the... If you cut the tree off at the trunk, mm-hmm. you still have the fundamental tendencies of how the brain works. And so, yeah, like, I mean, in Western Europe, if, if you're largely rejecting, like, traditional uh, religion there are still going to be things that pop up out of that root. Um, maybe a more belief, belief in ghosts or kind of like a neo-paganism or things well, yeah, like this. That's the These lesson. tendencies are always going to be there. That's the lesson that, uh, that 
uh, a lot of skeptics, I think, have drawn from the experience of, of Western Europe is, you know, we hear them warning us in the Americas, don't assume that if you stop organized religion, people are going to become rational. Exactly. They're still going to believe you know, in stupid stuff. Yeah. yeah. It just may be different age, stupid New stuff. age will be on the rise. Yeah. Uh, it, it underscores a point we make a lot on this on this uh, show that it's it's critical thinking skills that are far more important uh, than whatever your particular metaphysical views happen to be. Right, right. Yeah, and that second half of his book is essentially devoted. He he transitions from a lot of the kid experiments to the him even calls it implications. And one of his implications, I thought, the thing that was that staggered me the most about the book was he puts a little chapter and some pages in there on is atheism unnatural and advice to atheists if you want to raise atheist kids, here's how to do it. And in some ways, he here's where he transitions from the science to a little bit into polemical territory. Yeah. And that yeah. his religiosity does sort of come out. He uses data, stuff that we've talked about just on the show before, the fact that atheists tend to be educated, mm-hmm. you know, white males in, in safe industrialized countries and things like that. He suggests that the reason that sort of – if you want to raise kids non-religious – you need a, a, all those elements present. You need a, a safe environment safe, where there's not a lot home. of crap yeah. happening. You need uh, education. You need to over a lot of time and stuff to override the natural impulses there. He calls this like advice on how to be a confident atheist. Uh, nice and, of him to offer advice to us. <laughs> which, I, I do appreciate that. Have, have less theory of Good mind guy. and social reasoning, So, which again hmm. to us would probably mean you know lose the social skills. Uh, that is, don't get to... It worked for you, so... He's reading my mind. Two, number two, don't have kids. Number three, stay safe. By that, he means be in a safe, stable yeah. you know, government and environment. That one I felt a little insulted by. I mean, I get the idea. Uh, the idea, this was, uh, this was one, of the, one of my more favorite parts of Shermer's book, Why We Believe, showing how superstitious reasoning and post hoc reasoning and everything uh, goes way up in the more dangerous of territory you are and the more uncertain of territory. Is this the kind of like... Atheists and foxholes. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Well, they, and we've talked but, before. But I, I hate that kind of like instead of it does seem instead of putting <laughs> it as yes, in fearful and chaotic situations, yeah. we fall back on uh, yeah. on overactive imaginations. Yeah. 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 We really try to find any kind of causal connections that we can, and we'll grasp at them. He he turns it into a kind of like stay safe, <laughs> be pampered, little Western <laughs> educated. See, whereas I I took it as if if you if you were religious, would you really want your beliefs to be present? Dedicated on a, on a dangerous environment? I mean, yeah. Like, no. Right, well, right, right. Uh, but, you know, let me do his the other one here. The hard knock life people appreciate God, you atheists. Your his other one here world. was number four, credit and blame humans rather than God. That is uh, that you have to – to be an atheist, you have to get used to saying it's the person's responsibility rather than God or spirits or anything trying to do and, that. And this that was, was news to me as a determinist. Yeah. But this goes right back to what we were talking about with the uh, Aurora shooting survivor. Oh, okay. You know, yeah. I mean, you know, don't credit this this invisible agency. Um, credit the people who you're actually seeing do this. When when your kids ask, I mean, that's one of the reasons we don't do Santa at our house. Is you know, you're giving credit to an imaginary being instead of saying, well, we got you your Christmas presents. This right, is well, from Grandma. This is from – that does help because it doesn't foster those, that idea. Dave writes his pseudo, name on all the presents. <laughs> he calls these <laughs> pseudo-agents fate, uh, chance, yeah. random stuff, mm-hmm. uh, the universe happens. He calls these pseudo-agents, and he says that atheists have a pre- preference for that. And then his last one there – and 
number seven was indoctrinate young people against religion, if you want to have that. That is, you need an active force to prevent that, uh, to fight, swim against the stream of naturalistic thinking. Now, those three that I just mentioned at the end there, I'm going to, here's where I get cranky. Those are demonstrably false. That is, mm. let's take belief in pseudo-agents like fate. If he means by that, like fate, karma, and things like that, we have studies that show that atheists are less likely than religious people to believe in luck, right. fate, chance. He adds among the pseudo-agents, chance has been probability theory. That is, mm-hmm. well, if you have a, a long enough universe, evolution is bound to happen or life is – he calls that a pseudo-agent. I don't call that a pseudo-agent. Mm, I yeah. call that an anti-agent. Yeah. That's, right. If he means by chance, <laughs> like you know, coincidence, that's woo-woo type new age stuff. But if he means by chance that things happen uh, with probability, Bayesian curves and things like that, that's not a pseudo-agent. That's just the universe out of physical properties. Mm-hmm. And, and – um, it's Here's, about as far from an agent as, as you can, you can get. get. Yeah. yeah, and okay, so his other thing here that I want to take issue with too was that he mentions there that the um, the zealousness with which uh, an atheist would have to unindoctrinate a kid from religion. That is, you know, if religion is natural, to get kids yes. not to be natural, he suggests that atheists proselytize. We really to, have to work at it in order to, to have children who are atheists. Yeah, in fact, I wanted to get a, let me, this is from, uh, this is a, later in the book when he talks about teaching kids against God. So he suggested, um, I mean, he concedes that parents can teach kids what they want. He says, I'm tempted to defend atheist parents passing on their atheist beliefs in the same way, but must mention one wrinkle. Uh, Scientific evidence demonstrates the personal value in in committed religious practice. Research does indicate that commitment to religious belief system and participation in a religious community is associated with many positive outcomes. So he gets into the stuff that I've always gone on about in the show before about uh, about you know religion is positive, being an actively religious church member. So I'm not going to beat my response to that to death, other than just saying it's not. And Listen talked to about, any other episode of the show. Yeah. So you know, he, but he seems to be suggesting the that why it's okay for re- here's the subtext though that I, that sort of rubbed me the wrong way. His subtext is it's wrong to indoctrinate kids, except when you think that good things can come of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's good to be religious, and you know, so why can't we do that? Just, he says, and this is a quote: "Just the be- presence of benefits doesn't count as justification for believing in God." So he's suggesting that, by implication, then I guess that um, it is, even though you can't say that it's you know just because, in other words, you feel good that God exists. He he seems to suggest why. Uh, my question is, why does it justify? teaching kids uh, about God just to say that there's benefits. There might not be benefits to that. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the final thing, though, is that he suggests that that there's a zealousness about atheists to convert kids. Oh, we're all militant. Uh, this is on his page. If people want to look it up in the book, page 231. Uh, Certainly parents who withdraw love or even threaten physical punishment from kids, from children who disagree with their worldview can constitute a form of abuse and represents a moral failing on their part. Nevertheless, I see no reason to suppose that religious parents wishing for their children to be religious are any more prone to perpetrate such injustice than atheist parents wishing for their children to be atheists. What about all the statistics that show I that that's the case? I'm going to call BS on that one. Yeah. Okay, there, we, uh, there's ample evidence that religious people are much more into having their kids be religious clones than there are atheist parents. In fact, I even went, when some of my studies that I've been doing ask questions like, how important is it for you, for your kids to share your beliefs. Uh, in, in other words, I've done studies here where we compare church people and, and secular people and ask them the specific question. This is the exact wording. How important is it to you to have your children have the same opinions in regards to religion or non-religion as you? 
And what I found was that, you know, again, you're probably not too surprised in the room, is that uh, there was a clear difference that was significant where religious people were much more, said it was much more important to them to have their kids have the same religious beliefs than atheists or secular people for their kids. In fact, it was even, here, I'm going to, the listeners can't see this, but I'm going to show you a graph in the studio. See that high spike at one side? What I'm showing them is these are people who say that they strongly believe in God and how important it is for their kids to have the same opinion. It's That's a pretty them. big spike it's for everybody. There's the atheist down here. <laughs> wow. Let's take our word for it. So it's an impressive I, I, I actually, Luke, I, I accurately predicted last night at a cook at a, uh, a cookout that you would do that today. <laughs> that I would do what? That at some point you would try to show us a chart on an audio podcast. It's almost like it was fated to be. I got your vibes through the ether that I would do that. I'm gonna, the naturalistic explanation for I, that is I that I should have put a dollar value to that. <laughs> I'm going to take that as a compliment that you know that when, when, some, when somebody makes a statement that could be demonstrably proven false, mm-hmm. I'm going to – Luke's going to have a chart. Have He's going to show the data even false. if no one can see it, folks. <laughs> <laughs> Getting back to the point, the most common refrain that we hear at these secular uh, parenting conferences that we're putting on here at CFI mm-hmm. Michigan is – I don't want my kid to be an atheist, <laughs> you know. I uh, not unless that's what they they want for themselves. I want to tell them that before a certain age, they should try out different ideas and they should be exposed to a lot of things and and to actually wait until they're older to start choosing their identity. Um, there, there, are, yeah. I mean, they might have preferences. Like if you guys remember the studies that we've talked about before with uh, the amazing apostates versus amazing believer studies. Mm-hmm. These are there's a standard question by Robert Altemeyer when he has worked with people on the questioning teen scenario. So that is, he comes, he gives them a scenario. Let's say that a teen is being, and then he varies it, like either being raised by religious or non-religious parents, and has questions, and comes to you and asks you, "What should I do with these questions? What would you encourage him to do?" And then he gives people options. Would you encourage him to say, you know, "Screw you" to the parents, and you know, uh, or would you encourage him to work it out himself? He needs to find his own answers. And the, it's not even close that the people who are uh, religious tend to say, you know, that would push their beliefs on the kids by a large margin over the atheists and the mm-hmm. apostates who say you need to work it out for yourself. Mm-hmm. Hmm. And so clearly they have preferences. Like if you ask them, you know, should should teens not, you know, you know, question their religion, they say yes. But when it comes to would you influence this particular kid coming to you with questions, uh, this is what floored me about this, and that is that it's so demonstrably false. And anybody who has been raised in a religious environment would know that religious parents gets much get much more worked up about the possibility of their kid yeah. having doubts than yeah. non-religious parents. You only need to spend a passing amount of time with them to find that difference. Yeah, yeah. So um, one one of my critiques of Barrett is that I, I do think overall his reasoning seemed pretty sound. He presented a lot of really good data on that. I'm somewhat hesitant to say that the Christian author here went straight to the data, whereas the atheist mm. <laughs> author, Jesse Baring, though I think his was much more readable prose as far as much more literary. It, it's a better written book. Yeah, yeah. yeah it's, it's, uh, I have respect for Barrett for just getting to the data right away. Mm. One, of the, one of my issues with Barrett is that if he's wishing to critique this indoctrination hypothesis, he's right. This is really good evidence that uh, there is a more natural tendency towards belief in supernatural agency. Mm -hmm. I think that's been demonstrated. My issue is that the indoctrination hypothesis to begin with is a little straw manish in that we can find examples of atheists saying these sorts of things, 
But I'm not sure that's the dominant position amongst atheists, that that's a major case that's being made. And even in cases like where he brings up Christopher Hitchens, he cites some pretty embarrassing quotes from Hitchens and Dawkins when put right next to his research. Hmm. But what I think he's getting is that uh, when atheists fault religious indoctrination for perpetuating irrationality and perpetuating religion, uh, they have more in mind than just beliefs in invisible agents or beliefs in design about our environment or symbolic communication and life events, those types of things. Hitchens will call out the fact that the ultimate, ultimate love and, and, a, and a good moral test of who you are is your willingness to kill your child. That's an irrational belief that couldn't be perpetuated without a religious justification. Right. The idea of the Trinity. I think oftentimes Dawkins and Hitchens and other people, when they say it takes religious indoctrination to perpetuate these beliefs, they mean more specific theologically. They're not uh, talking about just a belief in supernatural. Yeah. Uh, they're talking about specific instances. Right. Just as Christians find uh, you know, certain doctrines of Hinduism to be just implausible on their surface, right. uh, there's no natural tendency to believe in moksha. You know, right. There's no natural tendency to believe in the identity of the soul being identical with God or any of that, mm-hmm. or any of the ling- or any of the gymnastics that are meant to justify it. Same thing with a lot of Christian doctrines like the Trinity, etc. Or it's a bit of a bait and switch to say, well, look, there's this natural tendency to believe in the supernatural in general, or a kind of general religion. And then switch to critiques of the entire worldview. I, I would say it is necessary to indoctrinate children uh, to make certain theological beliefs oh, for sure, palatable yeah. to yeah. them. Because otherwise, say, you're left with a even if a I big admit, deity of some yeah. sort, you know, a right. deism. Of- so yeah, I, exactly. I would go further though and say that there is some harm in natural in this in at least one naturalistic aspect of religion that when it comes to that things happen for a reason. I think that has a lot of negative things that leads mm-hmm. to things like witchcraft. Victim blaming, and he and he tends to gloss it over and say, "What's the harm?" And you know, there's actually kids on this trajectory of natural beliefs that should be encouraged. I think that it's good that people sh- can learn to override stuff happens yeah. for a reason. Yeah. It's, yeah, stuff happens for a reason as it has a lot more negative aspects to it than positive aspects. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, he probably wouldn't defend that, but that, I think that it should be pointed out that that if that's one prototype or template of religion is to think that teleologically and that things happen for a reason, that actions must have had a cause, that has a lot of direct negative aspects in almost all religions and superstitious systems, and that is, oh, lightning struck my hut. It must be because he was fornicating or kill you know, a virgin. Yeah, kill. Yeah. Let's throw us throw somebody in the volcano. Uh, that, yeah. that and you know that has that sort of naturalistic thinking is and it can lead to incredibly problems. pervasive in modern society. We're not talking about just lightning struck my hut. You know, uh, volcano got angry. We're talking about real world implications for this. No, we can see this in a pl- even political debates that Absolutely. educated people assume that if you're in a, b- a bad situation that you somehow deserve it. It's just world belief mm-hmm. thinking. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Jesse Baring was far better in his book uh, outlining the disastrous, the negative consequences of these of these natural tendencies as well. I thought that was a, a clear strength of, of his book. So interesting research. 
one wonders what the apologists are going to make of this, right? Uh, what implication are we going to draw from this? Because my, my immediate reaction was uh, I was thinking, for example, of my debate with uh, Cliff Connectly, where Cliff brought up a pretty standard argument uh, evoking the, our sense of the divine, the census divinitatis, where, uh, where Connectly said, look, there's this universal impulse in all societies, in all cultures, for people to believe in something like a god, uh, for people to believe in the supernatural. How on atheism do we explain this sort of thing? And he was making a kind of appeal to ignorance that the only what reason we could have a sense of God uh, would be if God put it there. Yes. Yeah. Was it, this was evidence that God was really there and trying to put his calling card on our hearts. Well, I mean, I think clearly this evidence <laughs> speaks against that argument. Uh, Occam's razor nicely slices God off of all of this because we can see, no, God, uh, theistic belief is not, is not actually designed. That's not the conclusion of this book that people, people are naturally theists. It's just that it's a good fit with our intuitive thought processes, and all of those can be explained through purely naturalistic reasons. And I would even go further than that. I don't think it's just a case of uh, one hypothesis that this is a byproduct of other cognitively uh, of other cognitive capacities. It's not only the simpler hypothesis than God. It actually uh, it fits all of the data much better. In that a lot of this data could not be accounted for by just saying God put this into us. Right. Uh, in, in, in why the types of cognitive errors? Why would he that go up to one this? level and say he's gonna, we're going to create these creatures that will have a natural sense of me, but not finish it off by saying which God? I mean, is it seem right. perverse? This is a fairly crude, you know, unphilosophical. But why? What sense would it make to populate a bunch of your creation with enough? Natural intuition to really think that there's that you're up there and mm-hmm. want to defend that, but then not give them enough specifics yeah. to you know it's almost perverse. And, yeah, and, that, and, and damn and that, them if they don't. And that your imaginary friend uh, has the same powers of God. Right. That your mommy and daddy will be immortal. So, you know, Barrett talks about in the book. Oh, the Hindus and Christians and Jews—they all have this natural sense of God. And I'm thinking when I'm reading that, what? So what sense does it make to say that that's natural? God put that God-shaped hole in your brain, but not finish the job enough so that they're going to go kill each other to figuring out which which intuition is the correct one. Yeah. He also does make the point of, of of kind of warning us, and I think that this is, is, is important, that this in and of itself, I don't think, disproves that there's a God. That would be a kind of genetic fallacy, but, yeah. right. but a kind of abductive approach to these things, the, a kind of what best explains, you know, what what is this data more comfortable in a naturalistic kind of worldview or in a theistic kind of worldview? Well, I, I think it's ev- even different than that. Were you saying Barrett was taking an abductive approach? I guess he does. Well, he was saying that that's, that's an approach that a naturalist yeah. could take is to argue that abductively this makes more sense given our worldview. Yeah. Um, because it's not in and of itself a disproof of God. Yeah, which is exactly what I'm saying. Yeah, okay. and I, I wouldn't say this is, this is disproof of God either. Uh, right, it's right. just it makes more sense. It's an inference to the best explanation. It's right. also not proof yeah. of God either. Which it is, is the simplest amount of background yep. assumptions. It matches yeah. all the data, and it takes care of – it explains it almost entirely. Well, There's I, no need to – I would say too, like evolution in general, it's, it's not a – it's a – I would say it's evidence against a certain type of God. It's, it's evidence mm-hmm. for if there that, is a God that, that causes this, it's a tinkerer God. 
Yeah, as Woody Allen said, if there is a God, I don't think we can say he's evil. The best we can say is probably he's an underachiever. <laughs> uh, Barrett is very careful about uh, what implications he'll draw for this as for his own theism. He's careful to qualify that this doesn't prove God. Mm-hmm. Appreciate but that. But what's interesting is the strategy, that what he does take away from this. This comes from 100, uh, page 173 of Born Believers. I favor the approach, and Grand Rapids residents will probably recognize this immediately, I favor the approach that regards our minds as basically trustworthy to deliver true beliefs that are naturally arising childish (laughs) beliefs should be regarded as true until we have good reason to suspect them as being problematic. It is not clear to me that we can do otherwise and still function as normal, sane human beings. So much of our core knowledge and guiding values arise during childhood and shape our lives, we should trust these childish beliefs as innocent until proven guilty. So his, his maneuver is far more subtle here. It's not that this proves God. It's that this establishes a burden of proof on the atheist in that Theistic beliefs and impulses should just be trusted. Yeah. In the same way we trust that there's other minds out there. It's natural. In the same way that we trust that there's uh, logical order underneath things. These are things that uh, until somebody comes along and proves that God can't exist, we have more than enough warrant uh, to believe it. Uh, People who are burdened with an overabundance of theological and apologetic knowledge are going to recognize that for what it is right away. Uh, this is an epi- this is an epistemological view. It is shared by Plantinga. It's common to Reformed epistemology. It's going to be all over Calvin College, mm-hmm. where this uh, gentleman cut his teeth. This is this is proper functionalism. The idea, as Plantinga would say, that they don't need to argue directly for God. Properly basic. It's a properly basic belief. While we don't have arguments for other minds we still think it's rational to believe in other minds. Um, and so he also thinks that maybe the belief in God is, is kind of analogous to that. While we may not have good arguments for God, it's still rational to believe in God, even though we may not have you know good arguments, just in the same sense that we don't have good arguments for other minds. Well, that, that's just setting the default. The, the burden of proof is... He's shifting that. Yes, well, and this yeah. is his, and that's, that's what we're saying. This that's is what he's trying to do. He's what, showing what, that the uh, evidentialist position what is, Barrett is... What Barrett is doing is... Oddly, he's 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 drawing upon the psychological research to try to make a philosophical point. I mean, it's, about it's the one thing to say it's possible; it's not inconsistent with the evidence. It's one thing to say that versus does the evidence lead up to that? Those are two different things. Uh, apologist uh, Greg Kokel would agree. Um, that's actually how Barrett's book first came to my attention was on his on his. Apologetics blog, say hello, the oddly named Say Hello to My Little Friend. Oh, that's, uh, Glenn, blog. that's Glenn Peoples. <laughs> I'm sorry, Glenn Peoples. <laughs> yeah. I saw that too, and I thought, what? why is that? The, <laughs> is it a gangster <laughs> blog? Is it a yeah. Al Pacino thing? I, I actually, you know, I actually kind of like Glenn Peoples a little bit. Uh, and his explanation on his blog for why he put it there was basically just because he likes it. <laughs> All right. He's, yeah, he's got, and he said, I could add some explosions if it would make people more happy. <laughs> uh, it would. It would. <laughs> and he did. Yeah, his his profile picture has like flames, heavy metal flames oh, behind him and stuff. So, he he uh, he is an apologist with a sense of humor, and I respect him uh, for that. He seized upon this right away. This research, 
uh, to say that what has been demonstrated from this, he says, is the this census divinitatis, the sense of the divine, is is now scientifically proven. He mentions John Calvin's description of the census divinitatis is that this, that there exists in the human mind and indeed by natural instinct some sense of a deity we hold to be beyond dispute. Since God himself to prevent any man from pretending ignorance, he has endued all men with some idea of his Godhead. That kind of sounds sexy. Endued <laughs> all men with, his God with some idea of his Godhead. Wow. The memory of which he constantly renews and occasionally enlarges that all to a man being aware that there is a God. Now, now I can't help but to see the homosexual reading here. <laughs> and that he is their maker and may be condemned by their, uh, by their own conscience when they neither worship him nor consecrate their lives to his service. That is to Calvin, the sense of the divine that we've been created with, that the apologists are now looking at this information and saying, hey, we have empirical support for this. So on our next episode, taking this in a slightly more philosophical direction, we're going to look at what exactly is this proposed census divinitatis? How does it relate to this psychological research, and what does it mean for our epistemology, basically? Uh, what does it mean for these issues of burden of proof? Is theistic belief warranted, or does the athe- or can the atheist claim that the burden of proof is on the theist? So uh, look for that one next time. All right, let's move on to some props and shit list. On our props list this time... Um, Gore Vidal for A Life Well Lived. Gore Vidal passed away. He was an author, playwright, occasional actor, thinker, writer. And he was actually the first person that I can find reference to to use the term born-again atheist, which Mm -hmm. is uh, a term that I actually have on a T-shirt, and I didn't know it was his. A lot of people are not really aware of what Gore Vidal did. I think a That's lot of people... including me. Yeah, right. <laughs> and me. <laughs> um, well, he did. He was one of the screenwriters for the movie Ben-Hur, where he he was the guy responsible for including the homosexual subtext. <laughs> Which totally, when I saw it as a child, went over my head. Yeah. Oh, but so, it's there. Why did those guys hate each other so <laughs> yeah, much? Exactly. What why are they, they wrestling? They were good friends. What? Right. <laughs> but uh, he was um, an activist for um, gay rights. He was an outspoken atheist for many years. And he goes back to the era of talk shows when people like Johnny Carson would have people like Gore Vidal on to just talk about stuff. Public intellectuals. Yeah. It was actually cool to have that. To have oh, discussions mm-hmm. about I, things. I saw a YouTube of him on William F. Buckley. Yeah, and yeah there you go. Vidal just <laughs> flat out says, would you just shut up for a bit? Yeah. <laughs> he called him a crypto-fascist, and then <laughs> yeah. Buckley said that he was a queer. <laughs> Which he was. Um, but uh, And he was buddies with Christopher Hitchens. He really was a, a great um, thinker in our movement and a strong personality. I just wanted to read a couple of quotes of his for people who are not familiar with Gore Vidal, just to give you a little bit of context here. Speaking of a topic that we took on recently, the issue of the separation of church and state and uh, tax exemptions for churches, Um, this is um, in an article entitled The New Theocrats from The Nation, which he wrote in 1997, so going a ways back. The original gentleman's agreement, he says, between church and state was that we the people, the state, will in no way help or hinder any religion while absently observing that as religion is a good thing, 
the little church on Elm Street won't have to pay a property tax. No one envisioned that the most valuable real estate at the heart of most of our old cities would be tax-exempt as churches mm -hmm. and temples and organ boxes increased their holdings and portfolios. The quo for this huge quid was that religion would stay out of politics and not impose its superstitions on us, the people. The agreement broke down years ago. So, um, strong advocate for the separation of church and state, speaking out about the exact same thing we were speaking about uh, last time. Uh, speaking specifically to religion, he said, quote, I regard monotheism as the greatest disaster ever to befall the human race. I see no good in Judaism, Christianity, or Islam. Good people, yes, but any religion based on a single, well, frenzied and virulent God is not as useful to the human race as, say, Confucianism, which is not a religion, but an ethical and educational system. Strong personality, um, certainly not a guy to back down from a fight, and uh, he will be missed. So. Unlike the next atheist who's on our shit list, Jesse <laughs> Baring, who backed down, on a <laughs> backed down on a fight that's very important to, to me, and mm -hmm. that's the, the fight saying that we atheists are just as moral as you Christians, uh, that we do have a foundation for our morality. We do, in fact... Um, we can be good people. We yes. can be trusted. Yes. And so, which is all the more surprising. I mean, Barry, uh, Ju uh, Jesse Baring is, you know, we talked about his work earlier, yeah. but he's... Uh, Just talked about him. He's, he's the author of The Belief Instinct. Uh, very that, open about his atheism, yeah. very open about being gay. But then he has a column in Salon that's in the headline is, Don't Trust the Godless. Mm -hmm. yep. Subtitle, even as an atheist, I have more confidence in religious people. And now science is backing me up. Mm -hmm. yeah. So he goes through the, the some of the standard tropes that uh, you know I've talked about at least on the show before that that the that the um, when you you know the priming studies that we've talked about where you prime people with God related words and they tend to play more fair and with people or he's mentioned the things that um, like uh, the the Sunday church effect where when people on Sundays they tend to give more to charity and they have use less pornography on Sunday. Mm -hmm. There's that. Yeah, because yeah, hey. we all know pornography is evil. That's right. It's harmful. So essentially he endorses why he thinks that he trusts godly people more than godless is that the supernatural monitoring hypothesis that he cites research mm -hmm. suggesting that, you know, that when you activate the concept of God in people, religious and non-religious alike, it turns out that, that uh, they think they're being monitored by Sky Daddy and that they play more moral and therefore he's – you know, he he puts in little kind of you know witticisms there that uh, that's the reason that he choose a Catholic taxi driver uh, over somebody else uh, because so he expects them to be more ethical and give yep. him a, a fair. Uh, fair, yep. fair, fair. So clearly, as we've talked about in the show before, there, he's partially correct in that the, the, when you prime people with religious words, they do tend to play more moral, uh, more more fairly in these controlled studies. But what he left out was in the studies that he cited is that the conditions that prime people with secular, civic words, mm -hmm. police, justice, you know, court that you have the same effect. Yep. So one, it's not unique to religious concepts. Two, the, if the effect is the same on religious and non-religious people alike, it's not a personality effect. It's an effect mm -hmm. of just the context, the stereotype, and, yep. um, and that you would, you know, it's so to say that he would trust the religious person is a misreading of the study. 
Um, so, and that's not exactly hard data to get a hold of, is it? <laughs> I mean, well, especially for some someone of his studies field. He cites right? that study. The right. one he cites is the one that con- that contains the qualification. And he also didn't mention, you know, that you prime people with religion, you get non positive effects too. People right. get more. So the concept of religion is wrapped up also in that with. You know, with a supernatural sky daddy monitoring you, he might also want you to go smack the gay person or something yep. like that. And so people get more prejudicial and in-groupy when you prime them God's with God. God's like, go face. smack that gay. So, so there's a down, <laughs> you know, being many religious, this is something that's one of the most tenacious ideas that, oh, it's good to have somebody watching you because then you'll behave. But what if the somebody who's watching you behave wants you to do unpleasant things? Right. So, you know, is this, I don't know. So if is you, this like a political strategy or something to sell more books? Look, I'm coming out as an atheist, but I want I want I prefer religious I want people. the religious believers to know that I'm you know, I you know. read his columns and usually he's really clear, but then this one just the IQ level seems to draw get this one. This is right at the end of his column. We know from controlled studies with mock juries that if a person swears on or better yet kisses the Bible before testifying, the jury's perception of that person's believability is enhanced. After all, who in their right mind would lie before God? Well, as these findings suggest, atheists are more likely to do so. Now, where do you get from the fact yeah, that religious people strange. think that it's good for somebody to swear in the Bible that makes them more honest, that that, in fact, makes, that the makes them more honest? What is that? Right, right. So if well, you go ever... to our uh, Reason Behind Bars episode, right. and we can talk about all the religious primes and how much more vindictive it makes the judge. And, well, you know, religious you know, people the, and mock juries also believe that when the defendant who's already committed the crime has had a conversion since then, they give him lower sentences. All that taps into is the religious person's prejudice. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So major selection of evidence here and for, for for why. So an atheist can show his theist I cred. I don't know. Yeah. I, I can't stopped. even predict a motivation. If you somebody. ever want to scam Jesse Baring, tuck a Bible under your arm first because <laughs> he will he'll see it and he will believe that you are a Nigerian prince. Wait, That's I, the way to I shouldn't <laughs> respond to that email? I, well, <laughs> I got to go check my bank account. <laughs> Did he say he was a Jesus-loving Nigerian prince? Because then it must be honest. That's a scam now? But here is a good old-fashioned Stranger Than Fiction. This is a clip from uh, Pastor Aaron Fra, I'm excited. Or Fru, probably Fru, um, an Alabama pastor who was on the radio show American Family Radio. Oh, and that's my favorite. This is... Wait, is this when Southern Preachers Attack? This, uh, this <laughs> could be another edition of When Southern Preachers Attack. We need a theme song. Um, this is... Uh, they were talking about Chick-fil-A and gay marriage and all of that. Let's, uh, let's hear what Aaron Fru has to say here. The one society in history that first offered uh, marriage certificates to same-sex couples, you know, you'd think it would be Sodom and Gomorrah or, or Rome or Greece. It was actually the society just prior to the flood of Noah. And in the Mishnah, which is the rabbinical interpretation of the Torah in, you know, Jewish theology, they say that that's why God brought the flood because civilization was destroying itself, because there would be no more procreation. There would no longer be, you know, husbands and wives having children and furthering society. And so I challenge anyone to look up any society in human history, and you've got to go, you know, past like five or ten years, but 
find any society in human history that ever tried that experiment and uh, lived to tell about it. They've all been destroyed because, as Dan Cathy said, we're shaking our fist into the face of God. And so when it comes to civilization, society, God knew that the earth was going to, uh, the people in the earth were going to destroy themselves through, uh, you know, same-sex marriage. And so that's why he brought the flood. So God knew that everyone was going to destroy themselves, so he drowned everybody. <laughs> he drowned yeah, everybody. Yeah. That's the rational response. See, they're like going to go extinct. I better wipe them out before they go extinct. Why didn't he just make them hump each other, you know? Right. Like, it, uh, sounds like, the... it sounds like uh, Copen's response to the genocides of, or to the to the sacrifice of children yeah. that the Canaanites were doing. Kill them all. It was, yeah. it was so wrong. It was so wrong. Did you know they sacrificed children? Oh. Like, that's why God justified the murder of children. My, my favorite is, though, that not only was it homosexuality that was to blame, but they were issuing yeah. marriage yeah. certificates. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The Mishnah, Mishnah apparently records. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's... You find all of these gay marriage cuneiform tablets um, out there, so <laughs> clearly. And I want to know what what the hell happened to all the straight people? Did they stop having sex when they realized that gay people can get married? Isn't now? that what you're gonna do? I mean, gay well, marriage becomes well, legal. I mean, look it. at Iowa. Not a single to, straight person has been married. Did he need to flood them? Couldn't he have waited a generation? Wouldn't that have taken right. care of the problem? Yeah, yeah. There's just a whole lot wrong with that, and uh, it's just a lot of crap that uh, I'd like to see go away. Speaking of which, it's time for some polyatheism. In polyatheism, we take a look at some of the many gods and goddesses worshipped throughout history. Today, thanks to a suggestion by Everett, one of our listeners, thanks Everett, we're talking about what may be the most useful goddess ever imagined? Cloacina, the Roman goddess of the sewer. Now, I give the Romans a lot of crap, pun intended, of course, for lacking originality in their mythology. A great deal of their myths come from other cultures. First, they were world conquerors, and along with adding new lands into their empire, they also took in the gods of the people they came to, saw, and or conquered. If you're going to steal, steal from the Greeks. That's right. They got, they got that done. And that was the biggest base for their mythology, where they just changed the names and made them their own gods. But they also embraced many other deities wholeheartedly, including Egypt's Isis, the Celts, Epona, and eventually even a dude with a, from a weird Jewish break-off cult who ended up being really popular in Rome after some early tension, of course. And while Cloacina was originally an Etruscan goddess, she took to her adopted land as much as they took to her, and she represents an aspect of the Roman Empire that made them so very successful. You see, in ancient Rome, going back to the late 500s BCE, they had a leg up on other cultures because they had this crazy notion that sanitation helped improve one's quality of life. Now, I'm not saying that Rome wasn't filthy by our standards. I certainly wouldn't want to manufacture a computer chip or cook meth in even the cleanest streets of ancient Rome. <laughs> but by comparison, they were doing pretty well. What have the Romans ever done for us? <laughs> yeah, public product? public what, sanitation. Remember what it was schools? like before that? Oh, shut up. <laughs> in large part, this was due to their sewer system and its main hub, 
the Cloaca Maxima, which was presided over by the goddess Cloacina. It was such a recognized place of importance that they even stuck images of the Cloaca Maxima on some of their coins around the time of Julius Caesar. Can you imagine having a picture of an open sewer on a coin? I mean, the closest we've ever come is when they did that 50 states coin and uh, put Kentucky on a quarter. Makes me feel kind of sick just thinking about it. Oh, gosh. No offense to our listeners in Kentucky. <laughs> oh, but you on. know you live in a sewer. That is a cesspool of humanity. Well, anyway. Kentucky's really nice, man. Oh, it's Have beautiful. You Have you met the people there? They are the most southern of the northerners. But, Absolutely. Uh, I actually couldn't decide which state to use. I considered Nebraska um, for obvious reasons. Which is Yeah. Really, you could go anyway with that. Anyway, <laughs> it eventually came to pass, again, pun intended, that Cloacina became regarded as an aspect of the goddess Venus and was known as Venus Cloacina and got her own statue and shrine located right above the biggest sewer in town. Cloacina was worshipped not only as a goddess of the sewer and all that crap, but also as a goddess of purity, flushing away the filth. And, because of her connection to Venus, a goddess of marital sex. Ooh. I'm hoping that's because of the pureness of marital relations. And she had a shining purity ring. Yeah. Otherwise, perhaps there was some really disturbing German porn-style stuff going on in your average Roman marriage. But I'm just going to go on the safe side and assume it's because of the connection to purity that uh, she got that aspect. Now, Cloacina is a useful goddess, not only because she and her Cloaca Maxima, which translates to giant butthole, if I'm translating that correctly. Not only was she uh, connected to the uh, giant butthole, which kept Romans in much better health than those without advanced sewer systems, but she's also helpful today because of what she can represent to each of us. I'm starting here today a movement for the worship of Cloacina. It's very simple. Next time you hear a pastor claiming that gay marriage caused a worldwide flood, killed the dinosaurs, or makes baby Jesus cry, call Cloacina on them. When friends or family members are posting on Facebook that they have to buy a chicken sandwich to support free speech, or when someone argues that access to health care for all citizens is somehow going to cause the downfall of civilization, just ask Cloacina to flush all that crap away. When bloggers write endless harangues critiquing your podcast while completely missing any of the points you actually made on said podcast, say a little prayer to Cloacina. Session's getting a little more cathartic than I think any of Absolutely. us were wanting. <laughs> when you are forced to explain determinism versus free will for the 90th fucking time because people are being intentionally obtuse... Just turn all that shit over to Cloacina. Wipe up and walk away. Now you're just manipulating me. <laughs> okay, those are pretty specific examples, but you get the idea, right? Invoke the Cloacina rule and let her take your load. <laughs> now, I wanted to end, if for no other reason than to prove that the Romans appreciated toilet humor as much as you or me, well, at least me, Here's a prayer to Cloacina quoted in an article written by John C. Schaldwheeler, historian for the Arizona Water and Pollution Control Association. Quote, O Cloacina, goddess of this place, 
Look on thy suppliants with a smiling face. Soft yet cohesive, let thy offerings flow. <laughs> Not rashly swift, nor insolently slow. Wow. I have no idea if that's a legitimate prayer from ancient Rome or not, but God damn it, it's funny. So there you have it. Cloacina, goddess of filth, sewers, purity, marital relations, and patron of potty humor, and just one more goddess worth giving a crap about. Well, if we're going to do toilet humor on this show, we might as well do some sort of ancient Roman toilet <laughs> yeah, that's humor. What I was <laughs> we had such a way to keep it classy. <laughs> it, it was a listener suggestion <laughs> look. This one came to me. I had to run with it. I, I had the runs with it. Um, that's, uh, let's end the episode. Let's end it here. Um, we will be back soon with the second part of our number latest, two. Number two. <laughs> sorry, sorry, sorry. Uh, oh, thank you wow. for picking that up when I dropped the ball. I appreciate that, Justin. Um, in the meantime, you can write to us at doubtcast at gmail.com. Check out our website, doubtcast.org, or freethoughtblogs/slash reasonable doubts. And we will be back soon with more Reasonable Doubts, your skeptical guide to religion. To catch up on past Reasonable Doubts episodes or to email your questions or comments, check out www.doubtcast.org. Reasonable Doubts is a production of WPRR Reality Radio. You can find out more about Reality Radio at publicrealityradio.org. Reasonable Doubts theme music is performed by Love Fossil and used with permission. <laughs>